Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. We're going to be reading the last 11 verses, verses 49 through 59. Luke, chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. Uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 872. Uh, Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you hit John... You've gone too far. Let us give our attention to the reading of our God's word. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge yourself for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. And I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This sends the reading of God's word. Let us ask him to be with us as we uh, turn to it now. Father, your, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is our guide in the dark. It's the wisdom and truth that we follow each day. It's sweeter than honey and yet sharper than swords. It's healing and it is justice and it is ours to obey. Your word is our understanding of grace and peace and love and this is the reason we draw near to it. Speak to us through it, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine that you're on trial for your life, a a capital crime. The charges have been filed. The trial date is rapidly approaching. And you know everything. your, Your very life is at stake. And yet it's worse. Because you know that you're guilty. You know what you did and that you deserve whatever comes your way. The prosecution has you dead to rights. All the evidence is there. In some way, some ways, the, the trial seems more like a formality. And so you sit, and you wait. And then the day of your trial comes, and before you head over to the courtroom, the prosecutor asks to meet with you. And he walks in and he says, I have a deal to offer you. And of course, you're baffled. 
what kind of prosecutor offers a plea deal when he has a slam dunk case. But you hear him out. And he tells you, he says, admit what you have done and surrender all rights and in exchange, I will take your place and bear your punishment. You think to yourself, I don't think I I heard him right. And so you repeat back what you think you heard and he confirms it. And then he says, oh, there's one more thing. And you think, well, of course, there always is. So you brace yourself. And he says, when I die, in your place, I will no longer need my wealth, and there's a lot of it. And so I'd like to leave it to you. All you have to do is surrender your guilt and admit your guilt and surrender. And then he says, it's time to go. You have until we get to the courtroom to decide. Once we enter, the offer is off the table. It's an amazing deal. And it makes you wonder who in his right mind wouldn't take this deal. But you might be surprised. Because that's exactly the situation every single one of us is in. All of us, each and every one of us stands guilty before the holy God who has us dead to rights. And Jesus has come and offered to take our punishment if we would just surrender to him. But like all plea deals, the offer is only good until you stand before the judge. You can't wait forever. You must decide. And so the world is ultimately divided into two groups, those who who accept the offer and those who rage against it and any who accept it. And that's what our passage is about today. I could really summarize our whole passage this way. Forgiveness is available to all who surrender to Jesus before it's too late. Forgiveness is available to all who surrender to Jesus before it's too late. And so as we look at this passage, first we're going to see why Jesus came. He came to conquer sin and death and call a people out of this world. And then we'll hear his warning to not be lulled into a stupor, but to act while there's still time. That's what we're going to look at in our passage today. Throughout our passage, uh, Jesus gives us insight into why he came. Jesus is, is the eternal God uncreated, creator of all things, maker of heaven and earth. And he, he left the perfection of heaven and he took on human flesh and blood so that he might walk among us. And now he's telling his disciples exactly why he came. He says he came to bring fire, that is judgment to earth. But then look what he says in verse 50. He says that that he has a baptism with which to be baptized. Now, let's remember where we are. This is long after uh, his baptism by his cousin in, in the Jordan River. He's not talking about his baptism of water. 
He's talking about what that baptism anticipated. His, his horrific death on the cross at the hands of the Romans. Baptism is a picture uh, of death and judgment, what we deserve for our sins. But here Jesus says, he is the one who will endure that judgment. And that he's in distress while he waits. He wants to get it over with. And so the question is why? So why? Why would the God of heaven come to earth to endure judgment and a horrific death? Well, he's told us elsewhere, hasn't he? It was to die in the place of sinners. Because each of us has an unpayable debt. That were we be given all time, we could never pay it off and be free of it. Each of us owes our lives for our rebellion against our God. And Jesus came to pay that debt. As we read in Colossians in the, in the Declaration of Pardon, to cancel our record of debt, to die in our place and offer us heaven in exchange. You see, the, that ultimate plea bargain that I opened with isn't hypothetical. It, it's the message of the Bible. It's, it's the offer that is on the table. Jesus has said, surrender, admit your guilt, and I will take your punishment, and I will give you all that's mine. And then he goes on to explain the consequences that we will bear for accepting this. It will not give you peace with the world. It will bring a division like no other. That might surprise us to some degree, because when the world talks about Jesus, they like to to think that the Bible presents this meek and mild um, guy who, who never offends or judges anyone. Now, of course, there are, 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 are others on the opposite side, typically religious elite, who think that Jesus is judgmental and self-righteous with no patience for the weak and the sinful. And yet the real Jesus makes both of those look like fools. If Jesus was judgmental and impatient, he would never come to be baptized into death. And if he was afraid of offending people, passages like ours would not exist. Ultimately, we shouldn't be surprised to hear that what we do with Jesus will divide us. There are things in life that should bring division. The more important something is, the more it rightly divides. Your favorite flavor of oatmeal should not be a cause for division. Ethics should be. Jesus coming into this world to save sinners is the most important issue in life. And so it will be the greatest cause of division this world ever knows. Let me put it this way. What you do with Jesus is the single most important thing about you. On the last day, you will stand before your maker. And you will either have a plea bargain in hand or you will feebly 
try to prove your own innocence to the one who knows all. That's the great division. Whether you, whether you trust in the life, death, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ or whether you trust in yourself. There's no other way to put it. There's no other option. This single reality will divide families, parents and children and and siblings and so on. And Jesus isn't saying you should shun everybody in your family who's not a Christian. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is don't be surprised when those in your family who aren't Christians shun you. Because the claims that Jesus makes are so absolute, so humbling, that they are either the greatest news that you will ever hear or the most offensive. It's either the source of relief for your guilt and your shame or it is a spotlight on the very thing you are trying to hide. And while Jesus' offer of grace is free, it does require admitting your guilt and surrendering. Some people would rather go without grace than to admit their need for it. And we are living in a day when the church is letting other issues divide us. Race, politics, mass. And when when those in the church allow these things to divide her, they're saying that these things are the ultimate things, more so than what we do with Jesus. And we destroy our witness. Because all this is leading to what Jesus says in verses 54 through 59. He says, there's a storm coming. And it's a storm of judgment. And he points out that the hearers, they're able to watch signs in the sky for coming weather. You see dark clouds coming. You think it's going to rain. You're not crazy because it's going to rain. Likewise, a south wind blows if you're north of a desert and you prepare for the heat. And his point is simple. Everyone looks around for signs of what's coming so they can plan accordingly. And then he drops the boom. You hypocrites! How do you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky? But why? He says, you know how to do that, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? He says, history is like weather. There are signs of what's coming. Prior to Jesus' first coming, the next big step in history was the coming of the Messiah. Now that he's come, the next big step is his second coming and final judgment. To use my analogy at the beginning, we are all walking towards the courtroom. We just don't know how long the walk is. And once we get there, the offer of forgiveness is off the table. When Jesus comes, it'll be too late. This is what he means to judge the seasons. But Jesus isn't simply saying that failure to judge the seasons is a lack of ability to rightly understand what's coming. He says that their their failure is moral. They're hypocrites. They are unwilling to rightly judge the seasons. They're actively trying to convince themselves that things aren't as critical as the signs suggest. The dark clouds are coming. They sit outside. They sit there 
And then they're like, oh, why is it raining? Outwardly, we know what this all looks like. It starts with someone saying, I've got plenty of time. I'll get around to God and church and due course, but what's the hurry? And so they spend years pushing God away. And as they do, they have to justify those decisions. And and it becomes something like, well, I'm not really that bad. In, In fact, I've got some real moral problems with the Bible. We all hear these things more often than we can count. And it's not just non-Christians who go down this road. Christians regularly face the temptation to indulge sin just for a little while. They tell themselves, I'm just going to do this for a little while, not forever. I'll get right with God soon. But every second you spend indulging your sin makes it that much harder to give it up. Christians aren't immune to those dangerous roads. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, if you go down this road internally, you will end up with one of two paths. One possibility is that you will become so hard that you simply say, I refuse to surrender and I'm going to go down fighting. Your pride takes its stand. And the only option is is to attack God and any who follow him. I've seen non-Christians do this, and I've seen Christians do this time and time again when they choose to date non-Christians, when when they choose to become sexually active. they They become enslaved. And rather than confess and seek mercy, they start to guard their sin and find fault with God. It's what Jesus calls hypocrisy a refusal to judge the times. It's not a lack of data. It's a willful decision to ignore God's warning. For others, what is going on inside the heart is very different. After pushing God away, the person begins to wonder, could God ever accept someone like me? Perhaps that's where you are. Perhaps you've indulged your flesh. You've guarded your rights and no one else's. You've parented with pride, not grace. Or you've blamed your parents for your rebellion, demanding things to which you have no right. And after your rebellion, pursuing your own pleasure, after seeking self and self and self, reality finally sets in and you convince yourself there's no hope for someone like you. You are too far gone. If that's you, the final two verses of our passage are for you. Because Jesus closes with an exhortation. He says, As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The image is that you're walking towards the great and final judgment. And yet as you go, the prosecuting attorney is standing right next to you, offering you the greatest plea bargain ever offered. 
He's willing to pay your debt and suffer in your place, and He is willing to give you all that is His. Salvation is there for the taking, but the clock is ticking. Settle with Him now. Don't put this off. It's too important. It's fitting then that the Lord would keep this decision before us. Think about what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. He says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The Lord's Supper proclaims that that Jesus came and why he did. He he came to be baptized into death for us. But it it does so with a view to his return until he comes. We, we, We look back at his first coming, his death, but always until he comes, acknowledging every week that he is coming again. At an hour we saw last week that no one expects. And every week he reminds us of the single most important thing in life. It's what you do with Jesus. The bread and the wine are are pictures of his death, the reminders of what we deserve for our sin, and they are reminders of what what Jesus has endured to forgive us. And so let us let go of our foolish pride. Let us confess what everyone around us knows, that we need grace. Grace. And let us drink freely of God's mercy and his grace. Let us come as pardoned criminals, recipients of the ultimate plea bargain, and let us proclaim the grace of our magnificent Savior until he comes. Please join me in prayer. Merciful Savior, our hope is that we would not sin but we are grateful that when we do, we have an advocate who has suffered in our place and paid our debt and offers us forgiveness, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Help us to learn the beauty, the joy, and the peace of surrender. Steal us for antagonism that is sure to come, for breaking ranks, for admitting admitting what no one is allowed to admit, that we need grace, We need forgiveness. We need salvation. We throw ourselves on the mercy of the court and we thank you for your grace. We even soberly welcome the antagonism of the world if it means peace with you. Even so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.